Put up the card that says more to come. I'll be back. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Uh, criminal gangs in the United States use burner phones. Terrorists around the world use boner, burner phones. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs. Today we talk to Matthew Hennessy about the dismal science. Let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 587. Join us at ricochet.com and be here for number 588. And you'll also be part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. And, you know, usually at the end of this, we just have Rob Long expostulate at length, at fascinating length, about all the reasons to <laughs> join Ricochet. But he's got something to promo today, don't you, Rob? Yeah, just one thing. I want to let everybody know a week. From today, Friday, April 8th, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. We're doing another No Dumb Questions. This time, I'm really, really, really honored. The guest is Glenn Lowry, professor of economics at Brown, among other things, but especially he is host of Ricochet's own new podcast, The Glenn Show. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity for us to get to know him a little bit better and to ask a lot of questions. And I guarantee you, I will ask questions that are technically dumb, but because you call it No Dumb Questions, they cannot be categorized as such. Uh, in order to be here and be there, and we want you there to ask questions and really kind of you know, mix it up with Glenn, um, you got to be a Ricochet member. It's a members-only event, one of the many members-only events that we have. So if you're not a member, and we'd love for you to be a member, here's your chance to join us. Go to ricochet.com slash join. Get 14 days free. That will, of course, include Glenn, the No Done Questions, Glenn Lowry. And um, we will see you there. And if you are new and you uh, show up to this thing, or even if you join, uh, say hi on the member feed or say hi when you're at the No Dumb Questions because we want to say hi back to you. Um, you know, we're a collegial group. Don't you think so, Peter? Extremely, Rob. I had uh, was lucky enough to have Dennis Pranker on the No Dumb Questions oh, that's right. uh, l- last week. And it was fun because uh, in, in regards to the question posed to the Supreme Court nominee, I asked him, "Is it is what is a woman a dumb question? And, and and off Dennis went, and we had a great time. We talked about <laughs> yes, 40. really didn't require much. Uh, yes, much from you, I think. Yes, that, that show could have should have been titled "One Dumb Question." <laughs> it's at most for Ricochet members to listen to. And speaking of these members only thing, when I heard Rob say that, it reminded me that I was looking through Amazon the other day for a for a spring weight jacket, and what did I find? I found members only jackets oh sure and not only were they the, the same brand but it was the exact same style as the 80s classic with a little thin epaulettes wow. and the rest of it and You're i back. thought that i had that i can get that again i could, and i had my finger was poised over the button until i realized how pathetic would it be to go about wearing something that is a, a complete rehab complete um you know revisitation of my 80s look no no no. Likewise, you would think that statements that were made in the 80s, in particular geopolitical situations, should not be compared to things said today. For example, if you were wearing a members-only jacket while Ronald Reagan said, tear down this wall, Peter Robinson's great contribution to Western society, uh, that's one thing. It's another thing when Joe Biden makes a statement that some are now trying to 
make uh, a gaffe. Um, uh, he's, he's finding his spine finally. It's a, a an unforced error, endearingly so. Something else. Biden says Putin cannot remain in power, and Bill Crystal was there to defend him. Gentlemen, discuss. I defer to Mr. Robinson. Yes. <laughs> so, <clears throat> several. Uh, all week long, people have been asking me, was Ronald Reagan's line a gaffe? Does it really compare with Joe Biden's? And so my answer at this point is going to be a little bit pat, but I can count on the two of you to rough me up, to <laughs> unpat my answer. Let me begin with the pat answer. The pat answer runs as follows. I had a first response, and then I had a second, much more considered response, and they were both identical. Comparing Joe Biden to Ronald Reagan is just preposterous. Uh, Reagan's gaffe wasn't a gaffe. You could disagree with it. You could say that, as the State Department and the National Security Council did over and over again for the three weeks before he gave the speech, you could say he ought not to have said it, but it wasn't a gaffe. The president considered it carefully. He didn't ad lib it, and it fit into the policy context of the moment. Where Gorbachev was talking about glasnost and perestroika, there had been no official American response. And Ronald Reagan responded and said, if you're serious about liberalization, you can prove it by coming here and taking down this wall. Okay, contrast that with Joe Biden, for whom I have considerable sympathy. He got, he, he shouldn't be president. He's an older man now. And and he that's got carried sympathy. away. That's, that's yeah, exactly. boy, That is well, the bitter. That is the. Please <laughs> never sympathize with me that way. Well, well no, it's over. So over. he's reading this text Bless that's prepared for him, and he's looking for a way to fit his own oversized personality into this text someplace. Don't I get to say something of my own? And he follows the emotional logic, and there's this little outburst at the end. The problem with the outburst at the end is that we're trying, as I understand it, to sort out a deal with these people. And saying Putin can't remain in power suggests, has to suggest to Vladimir Putin that the President of the United States wants to, and, and remember, Putin is convinced that there's a Western plot to get him and to destroy Russia. I've talked to Mike McFall about this. Mike McFall said, oh yes, he really, truly believes all kinds of crazy things. This comment probably wasn't helpful. I understand why he said it. I, I, I'm right there with the emotional logic myself, but it wasn't a hmm. considered purposeful statement by a president of the United States there. That's Does that fly with you guys? That's that's kind and gentle and generous, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, look, I, don't, I I will I will shrink from making a medical diagnosis, as you know. I'm not licensed to practice medicine in the state of New York, where I am now. Um, <laughs> I, it, the, the 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 two statements are very very different, and but they're different, and I think it's it's interesting why they're different. Um, uh, one is uh, a call to a person to do something. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Wall. Yes, you have said this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Okay, I take you at your word. Tear down this wall. Uh, the personal call from one leader to another to do. A certain thing. I happen to think it was the right thing to do. He didn't do it. Um, it came down anyway. Um, but right. he, when it came down, he let it happen. You got to. There's a certain. There's a yes. certain her 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 heroism to Mikhail Gorbachev. You have to allow. There is. 
when, when push came to shove, he didn't push or shove. The second part is a really kind of a strange call to sort of passive action. This, this man can't remain in power. Well, that is categorically not true. He can. He can easily remain in power. He probably will remain in power. He's not asking anyone to do anything. He's not asking the West to do anything. The, it's very dangerous when leaders, you know, it's like, kind of like any negotiation or anytime, you know, we've all been in this position where somebody asks you to do something and it's not specific. Uh, right. That's a very dangerous thing to do, especially in the middle of a war. Um, and I suspect that uh, he um, he no longer has that. I mean, he look, Joe Biden never had control over his mouth. At any point in his career, has he ever been able to moderate his language? There's been no reason for him to even think that he should. When, Probably, has, he, when right. has he suffered from it? Right. John, um, John Pod told a story on Glop sometime within the last year about when John was working on the staff of the Washington Times. This is in the 80s. Senator Biden came in for a meeting with the editorial board. They had 45 minutes. They had a dozen questions prepared. They asked one question and Joe Biden talked for an hour and a half. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So that's, you know, so he's I don't think this is a sign that he's getting older. This is a sign that he's reverting to mean. Um, and we're now start, we're normal. Right. And we're starting right. to see the problem. Right. And, uh, it, and, you know, politically, it was dumb. Uh, then the walking it back was it, this. It, it always surprises me about this White House. It really does. It surprised me about the whole team they put together. These are not new. These are not, they are new, but they aren't. These are sort of seasoned politicos. You, you don't spend 48 hours weasel wording what he said. Well, no, he didn't this and that and the other. And then have him come out for well, for later, a few days later, with a full-throated, yes, I meant it. I was speaking from my right. heart, all that. That's what you say an hour later. Right. That's if, if it took you four days to get to that spin, there is a problem in that White House. That White House is <laughs> a, 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 a clown car, and it shouldn't be. I mean, I look, I disagree with them politically and on policy, but I, I just didn't expect this level of um, disarray. Right. Well, you know, the clown car supposedly contains infinite number of clowns. But what we worry <laughs> about is that is that after Biden gets out, Kamala Harris shifts into the driver's seat and then goes and then drives away. Um, we're, we're looking at you know, as somebody who is maybe there's a dog. There's a dog about. There's a dog about. Not my dog. Would it be Peter's dog? Okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> Peter's nodding. <laughs> we're, we're looking at how many more years of this, and then we're also looking at Biden's possible replacement, and nobody has any enthusiasm there. The question is, yeah. I mean, leaving aside what he said, it is indicative of what we got. What are they going to come up with next in order to convince people that this is uh, that the Democrat Party is going to be the vanguard for the future? And I don't really think we were arguing about this in Ricochet last night. I don't think they have anybody. They don't have a Bill Clinton who can come out and sister soldier <laughs> right. the AOC types and uh, and play the sax and be cool and telegenic and all the rest of it. They don't. So, you know, that's three years from now. Now on the ground, however, um, Putin didn't go anywhere. You're right. Putin may at this point say that uh, Ukraine has crossed a line. You may have read that there was an explosion at a fuel depot inside the Russian border that was performed apparently by Ukraine. This is this morning's news? Uh, about nine years ago, or nine years, it seems like it. Uh, nine hours or so ago. Oh, okay. It happened a while. Have you, I was it, asleep yeah. nine hours ago. 
big yeah. oil, de- big, big fuel depot that was supplying their tanks, which, according to one report, were going into battle half with you know half a tank to begin with, the tanks with half a tank. So now they're down an awful lot of fuel, which complicates the problem even more. How they did that is fascinating. Do they? How did they get helicopters across the border? Do they have some information about what codes to use? Nobody expected this was going to be the case after five weeks. And now Putin is perfectly able to say, you, you know, we went on a special operation to denazify them and look what's happened. Now Ukraine is invading us. Well, when you put together with this with the, the UK and the US uh, intelligence analyses about the massive cock up and the fact that they're seemingly pulling back from, from Kiev, what do you guys think actually is going to be the end game here? I know we've been talking about this for weeks, but we've got new information on the ground. And how long do you think it's going to take? Oh, <laughs> that, I have no idea. Um, I, I think um, last week, Neil Ferguson had a really uh, interesting way of looking at it. And one of the things he said is I, he, he said he believes that it is now in uh, the sort of Biden administration strategy to keep it going, um, which I found chilling, but, but logical in a kind of a creepy way. Uh, and so and, and, and a way to dis- dis- distance the West from the deal that Zelensky has to make. Um, and I feel like that's probably, so I don't know, I don't know the answer to the timetable, but th- that's certainly what it feels like to me that that's what's for those who didn't hear the podcast, explain why he thinks it's in the interests of the West well, or the interest of the Biden administration a, to keep, to keep it going. I don't think he thinks it's in the, it, it's not correct in the, in, in, he, I don't, he, he does not agree with it. And then he's just looking they, at the moves they're making. Why do well, they because you're, you're, uh, you're strengthening Europe. You're, you know, there's a continual military buildup. You are, um, if, if you're Biden, you think it's going to give you a little bump. Um, although he seems to be furthering that away anyway. Um, I don't know. It's just, it makes, it makes a certain amount of sense from the Western perspective that you weaken Putin, weaken him, weaken right. him, weaken him. The problem is getting out gets harder and the stakes get harder. I mean, just the reparations alone are going to be staggering. Um, you know, he's destroyed countless cities. Those cities need to be, you know, people need to pay for that. Um, so I, it feels to me like this is, that this is going to be an intractable, probably something along the lines of a frozen war. Either the bad version of it is North Korea, uh, maybe a somewhat bad version of it is um, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia with a disputed zone in which there are constant low-level terrorist attacks for the next 30 years. Um, That seems to be the most likely. Right. Uh, for those of us who didn't hear, for those who didn't hear the podcast, you mean because they were off waltzing around somewhere close to the equator, getting a it's deep available. tan? James Lilacs? It's possible. Uh, it's been known yes, to happen. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it's spring. Uh, so, um, I have colleagues at the Hoover Institution who know more than I. That actually doesn't distinguish them. Most people know more than I do. But I have one colleague in particular who has a family in Ukraine, and I have another colleague who's russian and uh, did time in prison in the old days in the soviet union and was one of alexander solzhenitsyn's best friends in other words he really knows russia and so we were chatting about this and i said well aren't the terms of the settlement already clear uh putin gets eastern ukraine and Zelensky gets the rest and that's fine 
because that gives Zelensky a country that really is pro-Western and he gets a chance to operate. Why can't they both just settle for that? And my friend who understands Ukraine very well said, mm, it's too late for that now. Uh, even in Eastern Ukraine, even the Russian-speaking Ukrainians now hate the Russians so much hmm. that they will shoot them every chance they get. Ordinary right. citizens cannot be counted upon to obey the law if it becomes part of Russia, becomes annexed, or Putin sets up public governments there. It's too late. The Ukrainians hate the Russians and want to kill them. Okay. And then my friend who knows Russia very well said, he's not sure how things will come out, but it strikes him as entirely possible that over the next couple of years, we'll see Russia begin to break up. Mm -hmm. That Putin's chain of command is breaking down already. That factory managers and people who are managing pumping stations for oil are now being told that they're going to get paid in rubles. Uh, Putin has insisted that Customer, Russia's customer pay pay in rubles rather than dollars. Nobody in Russia wants to get paid in rubles. They're used to hard currency now. So they'll begin asking themselves, what can Moscow do for me? Nothing. What can Moscow do to me? And if that answer begins to become nothing as well, we could see Russia itself break right. up. And then my friend said, we have this interesting problem, which is, Who's in charge of those almost 6,000 right. nuclear weapons? We are back this is, to 1992. Right, right. This is one reason why Joe Biden probably shouldn't have said this man can't remain in power without a very thoroughly thought through plan about what might come, how he would be removed from power and what would come next. So, by the way, both of these colleagues of mine at the Hoover Institution, I felt a little bit better about this. Both of them have said that like me, they suppose that at most Putin would try to slice off a little bit of eastern Ukraine. He'd try to, in one way or another to assert control of the Donbass. That they both were, were, that they themselves were totally taken by surprise when he launched airstrikes across the whole country and made it clear that he was going to make a bid for all of Ukraine. So this is all. By the way, one, Neil mentioned last week that Ukraine, there was fighting against the Soviet Union in Ukraine into the 1950s, and I looked that up, absolutely right. Yeah. These people kept fighting even after the Second World War. They kept fighting against the Soviet Union. There was an insurgency that wasn't finally settled until the 1950s. So Ukraine is a heavily armed country. They now hate the Russians, and these people fight. So to answer James' question, what's the way out? Rob will now sum it up. Well, actually, before I go to a commercial that Rob is going to spoil, Rob had another point that sort of tied it all together. The entire segment oh. and neat little bow that has <laughs> to do with politics. No, I, I, uh, I was just going to go back to politics because um, 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 I have no answer to what's going to happen to Ukraine. Uh, except that I, there is a, a slightly worse situation for those poor oil workers, uh, Peter, because um, uh, Russia will take payment in euros now. Um, oh, you can, the, 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 the Gazprom bank will take it to euros, but they are going to pay those workers in rubles. rubles right. They're going to, they're going to launder that and take and skim the top as they've been doing for years. But uh, anyway, so um, what I was going to say was that what's interesting is you have two most successful democratic presidents uh, in recent memory, two term Democrats. You have um, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Bill Clinton had a lot of 
problems. Uh, Bill Clinton lost the House and the Senate, I believe, at some point. Um, uh, but uh, but and, but he and he left the party um, not disastrously. Uh, they they had lost state houses. They lost governorships, which are really the governorships are the are the farm team for the presidency. Um, but not not catastrophically so. That, that that was Obama, the most popular Democratic president, maybe personally popular since since JFK, probably right. Um, he left the party in shambles. They threw everything over the board for Barack Obama. You can't say this, Democrats. Now they won't admit it, but just look at the numbers. They don't have any governors. They don't have. They have no farm team administrators. Uh, and, a, and I will say a, a, a Southern. Democrat governor in American politics is nearly unstoppable. That is mm. the gold, that is gold plated politics for you. And if you don't have any, because you've run them out of the party, because you've gotten too weird, um, you're in trouble. And then what you have is a bunch of blowhards and talkers in the Senate. Uh, and I don't mean that part in a partisan way. I believe that all senators are the worst and they are blowhards. Um, and probably only under certain conditions should be allowed anywhere near the White House. So it really does matter, I think, what your party stands for. Surprisingly, the Democrats, which was which for a long time were the biggest, I mean, huge party, encompassed this giant umbrella of American um, uh, uh, perspectives and politics. I mean, we had you had conservative Democrats, you had Texas Democrats, you had. Um, you know, you had right wing Democrats, basically, uh, and then far left, far left Democrats. You had a party with um, LBJ and uh, Lloyd Benson and also the Democratic Socialists of America somewhere, somewhat voting right somehow. And it became a very narrow party ideologically. And that's um, and they're not built for that. And they're going to reap the whirlwind. The uh, I walked by MSNBC yesterday and they were having a conversation about why the right is freaking out and starting a culture war about gay and and uh, transsexual uh, people, transgender people. They right. had somebody from Slater Salon or Stellon or whatever it was who was talking because this came from nothing out of they're scratching their heads trying to figure out the genesis of this. Why all of a sudden is the right casting about and looking for a villain? And they found Disney, innocent Disney, which has done right. nothing, said nothing. Now they're the enemy. And it's Q, of course, it's QAnon and their fascination <laughs> with it, I mean, they they honestly believe that this fight was begun. The whole DeSantis, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, bill which they mischaracterized from day one was begun and ginned up by the right and was not a reaction to cultural change they look at the ncaa women swimming and they think that that's the way it's been for a hundred years and that but for some strange reason because the republicans are desperate and because they're all weird people that they suddenly looked at this and said we have to imagine we have to manufacture a societal cultural war crisis about right. this so they will be surprised they will be surprised come the fall. But hey, right now it's spring. And because it's spring, guys, it doesn't mean you have to spend all your time hunting for your eggs. No, the right pair of underwear puts your eggs in one basket and keeps Man. them there. Oh, That's no. Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, he said proudly. And frankly, speaking of somebody who's just been on a beach uh, filled with Europeans, uh, <laughs> it's not it's not just for wearing uh, under your pants either. Some people proudly proclaim them in the public. Whether you're wearing the Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you're, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. That's one of the great things about feeling good about your undergarments. With dozens of comfort innovations, once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you're no, you're not going back. 
You probably never thought of innovative underwear, but with an air mesh interior hammock, moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, Tommy John stakes underpants to new heights. Unless you're my height, in which case it's kind of lower, but still, it's a new height. Plus, the legs, they never ride up. Never. And Tommy John's underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. You know what? The old stuff gets, you know, feels like you're wearing a rope around you. Not with this. No, that's why Tommy John's, they don't have customers. They have fanatics. Fanatics that call Tommy John's hammock pouch one of life's great inventions. With over 17 million pairs sold, men across America love their Tommy John underwear. As do I. One thing, too, it's not just the comfort, it's the durability. You know how sometimes you get that ratty pair your wife wants to toss out and you say, no, they're comfortable. Never had that with any Tommy John's. They look as good after and you know and innumerable wears as they did when you take them out of the package. Shipping and returns, they're free because every pair is backed by Tommy John's, quote, Best pair you'll ever wear or it's free, end quote, guarantee. Get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. Go to TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet for 20% off. That's TommyJohn.com slash Ricochet. See site for details. And we thank Tommy John for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Matthew Hennessy, contributor for City Journal, an op-ed editor of the Wall Street Journal, and the author of the soon-to-be-published Visible Hand, a wealth of notions on the miracle of the market. And he's here to tell us how learning economics needn't necessarily be miserable. Visible Hand and wealth of notions. Uh, I get the references, but I'm guessing that the target market perhaps doesn't. You're here to make economics fun, to teach them about it. Is that even possible? And how much work has to be done to uh, inform the average voters about the consequences of their political decisions? And thanks for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. I, uh, this is, I have to start by saying this is a huge treat for me because I've been on this podcast. This is the third time I've been on this podcast, and I am so grateful you keep bringing me back because I know I don't bring a whole lot of uh, audience with me, but the, but the previous times I was on this podcast, James wasn't here. So I'm a know. huge, I'm a ricochet nerd. So <laughs> this is like, for me, this is like completing my, my, uh, completing the set. The trifecta. <laughs> the trifecta. Wow. Well, You're, uh, you are very easily set. I, I dream bigger dreams, Matt. That's my, <laughs> my advice to you. Uh, well, the biggest dream I ever dreamed was to get married to a wonderful lady who has also yes. been on this podcast. Yes. So I think that there's not too many, uh, husband and wife duos who have, who have, I mean, there's a few I can think of uh, who have been on this podcast who have put up some numbers way more times than I have. But I believe uh, you're the, th I, I can only think of three, uh, three sets. Uh, I can only think of two you guys, um, Hemingway, uh, uh, Mark, mm -hmm. and, and, and Molly. Molly. And I think we had um, Bethany and Seth. Seth. Yeah. Yeah. Beth and Seth. Yeah. Oh, that's, you're, right. that's a kind of a, you're kind of like the, the, the trio power couple there. <laughs> Uh, also, Ursula was on, I think, one of the second, or, she was on the second or third podcast. I know you guys have done hundreds and hundreds of them, but yeah. Uh, so, hey, right. hey, Matt, okay, enough of this chit chat. You're a wonderful person and a glorious writer, but so far you're a lousy salesman. The name of the book is Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market. It happens that I've already read the book. It is just marvelous. It is a writer not an economist for whom English is a second or third language. It is a writer explaining economics. The intended audience is clearly young people, but I enjoyed every sentence. It, it, it's, it's two things that almost no books on economics are these days. It's a pleasure to read, and it's a celebration 
of free markets. And the voice, listen, I kept, I know enough about your background. I know you grew up helping your dad run a bar. And the voice is the relaxed, warm, friendly, well-meaning, good-hearted voice of the guy who's wiping down the bar and asking questions and chat. It's just lovely. So how, 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 why do kids embrace, here's the, so we'll put it in political context and then I'll shut up. But the name of the book again is The Visible Hand. It's brief too. Kids can actually just sit down and read this and enjoy it. Why did you write it now? And in other words, what's the market? Who, did you come up with this idea? Did somebody say, well, I think there's a market? What, 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 what's sort of the opening for the book? And why does poll after poll after poll show that college kids are in favor of socialism? Well, thank you for all those wonderful, nice words, uh, Peter. Uh, I come from a long line of um, English majors. People in my family are, for the most part, daydreamers, um, <laughs> amateur poets, um, wannabe musicians, teachers, uh, you know, in, in the respectable lanes of society. But uh, not too many mechanical engineers or, uh, you know, doctors. There's a few, but not too many. Uh, so for most of my life, because of that, I've, I, I, I thought of economics as something that was really necessary to avoid just as a matter of mental hygiene, not something that I could wrap my brain around. It sounded like homework to me. It had the mm -hmm. whiff of math. Um, I, I remember very vividly, I was in high school, uh, when the, uh, the Black Monday, the stock market crash of 1987. And I had this friend, I went over to his house and we were hanging out. I don't know, was looking at this stuff in his room, baseball cards or whatever. And he had saved, this kid had saved the front page of the New York Times from the day of the stock market crash. And I said, what do you got that for? What's that all about? He said, man, this is an important piece of uh, financial history here. I want to save this. It's going to be great. And I just, I could not believe that there were people in the world for whom that was the least bit interesting. Um, that kid, of course, went on to work at big banks and stuff and has a wonderful life. I'm still uh, <laughs> plugging away in the uh, ink-stained depths of the newsroom, uh, such as it is. But I, my, my whole, uh, the earliest part of my life, I spent trying to avoid this stuff. I ended up um, going to college very late. Uh, I was a 30-year-old freshman. And I took an economics course. Wait, wait, economics hold on. And why did it take you a while to get to college? What career were you attempting to pursue first? Well, I was out in Hollywood trying to be an actor. And uh, that, that, that went well for about a, a year and a half. And then it was just a long, slow glide into, the, uh, <laughs> into uh, you know, despair. It just didn't Can work I just, out. Can uh, so a plug for rid of it? Um, I write about that. Not you, but I write about that process uh this week in the washington examiner my column just to let you but now okay anyway i just will I I'll interrupt look you to while you're t yeah those would be some good memories for me then too <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right <laughs> uh so i took this this course completely as a sort of a challenge to myself like you need to grow up you're 30 years old you need to understand what people are talking about when they uh refer to economics i didn't even know what the word meant uh, I had heard about supply and demand in a kind of like uh, uh, here and there, as you do. I'd heard of the invisible hand. I thought I knew what that meant. 
Turns out I didn't really. Uh, but I just fell in love with this class. And so this, I, I, I once said to somebody, if I could take Economics 101, micro introduction to microeconomics, every day for the rest of my life, I think I would be pretty happy there, which is a, surprise, a surprising kind of a thing to realize when you've spent all your time you know, daydreaming about being a poet and an actor and a musician. So I fell in love with economics and not the, not the scary kind of economics, not what people like me sort of tend to think economics is or, or should be. But um, I found out that it's actually um, beautiful and that it's um, very intuitive. It's not, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be intimidating to people. Um, for, for, for a lot of people, I think the, the idea of, uh, you know, the producer price index or some uh, esoteric, you know, uh, cryptocurrency conversation is like snoozola. It just puts you right to sleep. Uh, but that's not what economics really is at its heart. And so uh, <laughs> I like the way you described the book, although I, I couldn't help but think it sounded like a book for children, the way you were describing it. I think that I would love it if, if, if high schools across America uh, were to buy this book and, uh, and assign it in, in uh, you know, I don't know what classes. I don't think they're teaching too many economics classes in high schools anymore, but there might be some uh, week during uh, an American history course where you could throw this book. And it, it's, I you know, I didn't write it for teenagers, but I could see how it would be pretty useful if you have someone in your house who is flirting with some abomination like collective economics, collectivist <laughs> economics. This might just be the thing that could... Right. Um, but isn't that what I mean, just to break, isn't that what they are teaching in school? I mean, economics is really the study of choices, right? I mean, the, 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 it, it starts from the premise that you're, you, get a, you get to make a choice and then what choice are you going to make? You do this, you're going to do that. How are you going to analyze your choices? For sure. Um, we even have that in, intellectually. The, the, the language of the marketplace is something we say about the marketplace of ideas, Although now, if you go to a go to pretty much any university, even some schools, I guess high schools, it's the marketplace of idea. Right? Isn't right, that right. a problem? I mean, is the study of economics? I guess this is my question. Is the study of economics a way out of this? Does it have something in addition so. to arguing? Okay. Go ahead. When I was in high school, I didn't have any option to study anything related to economics. All I got in high school was the history of the labor movement and the civil rights movement. <laughs> right. Uh, if this was available, I would have leapt at it. You said economics is about choice. Absolutely correct. But you have to go back one step before that. And what you would hear on, a, on, the, on the first day of that intro economics course is that economics is about choice in an environment of scarcity, right. which is uh, probably the most fundamental thing you need to sort of wrap your brain around if you're going to understand how the world works. Uh, as Mick Jagger said, you can't always get what you want. Life is about trade-offs. And that's sort of like the, uh, the, the theme I keep returning to in the book, that uh, you, you simply can't have everything you want. If you want something, you are almost certainly going to have to give up something to get it. And you're going to have to give up something that means something to you, something of value. I'll just tell you another quick story about my, uh, my high school years. There was a guy who was a science teacher in my high school. And I tell this story in the book. One day I'm walking through the hallways and I see him out on the stepladder with a little satchel and he's pulling paints and, um, and stencils out of his bag and like a crowd formed around him and people are kind of watching this and he starts stenciling out on the on the hallway like above the lockers in the space there uh, a, a, a a saying and it was uh life life is not about what you want 
Life is about the choices you make. And I remember sitting there kind of like stroking my teenage chin, thinking, what the heck is that all about? Uh, and I went about my business and I, and I, I, I went to high school and I went off and tried to become an actor and everything. And then every once in a while, this thing would pop into my head. Life is not about what you want. Life is about the choices you make. Uh, it ended up like sort of turning my whole head around because it's absolutely true and undeniable that, you know, what you want kind of doesn't really matter at all. So, uh, you know, the problem with young people, <laughs> Listen, listen, that's great. Whenever that phrase comes out of your mouth, you always have to laugh. Like, so the problem with young people is that it's almost all about what they want. They want um, equity. They want fairness. They want a better world. We should have this. We should be allowed to have this right now. And the people who are standing in our way are, you know, grumpy old hogs like Hennessy who insists that life is about trade-offs and that we can't have what we want. So hopefully if someone reads Visible Hand, A Wealth of Notions on the Miracle of the Market, uh, they will understand more fully how very much life is about trade-offs. I didn't mean to suggest that the book was aimed at uh, school-aged children, although I'm sure they would profit by it, because there are plenty of people who are adults who still have, and they generally seem to be on the left, alas, um, these sort of attenuated adolescent romantic notions about the economy, that if we can, if, if we want the right things, then the right things will happen. If we, if we pass the right bills and say the right magic words, there will be no economic second and third causes that, that, that follow on. And it, it, it seems impossible sometimes to dynamite the them from that because their their belief in the the uh, the uh, omnipotence and benevolence of institutions power and nice ideas seems un, un, untouched by reality even if you've been seeing the results for 30 years but i want to talk about something else and that is um right now i most of the a lot of the people that i know who are really into crypto are young and they have a their idea of of economics and how it works is focused almost exclusively on crypto. It's a religion, it seems sometimes. The other day in the grocery store, I saw a machine, a Bitcoin machine, in the grocery store where you could deposit money and get Bitcoin, which seemed to me the sort of crypto version of that moment, that anecdote in the twenties, where the guy said, "I knew it was time to get out of the market when I was getting stock market tips from my shoeshine guy." Is, are, we, are we at that point now with crypto? And is this going to be an economic lesson for people who that's all they really know about markets is what they've been doing online and in their little apps? Yeah, this, is, this, is, this falls under the heading of what I call strawberry fields economics, which is nothing is real, right? So currency, that's not even real, man. That's, we make yeah. that up. We can unmake it if we want to. You know, interest rates, uh, the national debt, there's uh, modern monetary theory, right, which, right, yeah. which uh, I call magical monetary theory, just to double up on the Beatles references. Uh, you know, it, you, you suggested that this is a this is a brain disease of the left. But unfortunately, that's not true. There are far more, uh, shall we say, uh, dirigiste uh, economic thinkers mm -hmm. on the right than than many of us uh, realized uh, only years ago, uh, pushing all sorts of fantastical uh, options for remaking a better world uh, right. through economics, through state power, through uh, policy. Uh, well, they how, have all sorts I, of. Let, let, let's just stop there. How? What, what are the policies and the ideas that they are pushing that are as equally phantasmagorical and, and, uh, and unmoored from reality as those people on the left who believe in MMT and, and the rest of those things? What? 
Well, uh, broadly speaking, is it's uh, it's an approach to uh, state power that involves seizing the power uh, and doing it doing it for the right reasons. So sometimes uh, we call this uh, you know you could broadly call this common good conservatism. Mm-hmm. There are other people that fall under that banner who who've actually sort of thought things through a little better, like Orrin Cass. Not that I agree with the idea of having an industrial policy for the United States or. Uh, you know, re, you know, rejiggering the tax system to uh, favor uh, certain outcomes that we consider to be good ones, like you know, giving people uh, you know uh, Orban-style bonuses for big families and this kind of stuff. Right. But it runs very far into loony land on the uh, 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 at the at the at the at the margins, shall we say, where um, there's just a general disregard for the laws of economics or the fundamentals of a of a market economy. Um, and and a belief that you can simply pitch them aside and make something better. As you just said, it's not like we haven't been running this experiment for a long time. The free market is fundamentally uh, uh, a better option. Uh, And if you try to circumvent it or if you try to fight it, if you try to fight the laws of supply and demand, you're going to lose, just like you're going to lose if you try to fight the laws of gravity. You can believe all you want that it's that that you shouldn't be able to that you shouldn't fall off the high dive and 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 smash into the pool. But if you jump off the high dive, that's what's going to happen. So uh, from the far left to the far right, there's a lot of uh, um, stinking thinking in the economic space these days. I said Oh, okay, sorry. I was just going to say, I fought the law and the law won. Since you're using music, music song titles uh, to get your point across, I would go with a Bobby Fuller four for you next. <laughs> Noted. Uh, so I got a question though. Isn't it just this natural human impulse to try to order and plan the future? This thing, this giant, big, fat question mark that starts tomorrow. And if you, if the Dirigis uh, idea, which is really sort of planned economy, um, I mean, it's irresistible. I mean, don't we all don't we tend to that left and right just sort of naturally because the future is a scary thing. And what economics teaches us is that that's no, it's not. It's scary, but it's it's scary good, right? I mean, it's a uh, it's exciting, and people don't like excitement. That's that's what socialism is supposed to do. Is supposed to remove excitement. I mean, isn't that? I mean, isn't that the uphill you have in trying to convince people? Uh, I don't know, Rob. I think people like excitement. Uh, I think that you're right. People are afraid of, you know, uncertainty is uh, is scary. Um, you know, I think that it probably is some kind of basic human impulse to try to control things. But my job is to fight those impulses. I have a lot right. of bad impulses that I have to that I have <laughs> <Okay>. to <laughs> uh, right. strangle. So, um, you know, what you're describing basically is the old me. I was afraid of the future. I was afraid of what. Uh, what I would find behind the curtain uh, if I if I took that economics class, but what I find was actually reassuring because it's very intuitive. Actually, you you start to realize that wow, this is how the world works. This is what happens when I um, you know go shopping in the marketplace. Like I right. do understand a lot of this stuff without having to be told or without having. There, we don't need any graphs. I guess what I mean is just to do a little sociology, which is another dark science. I um, love to do sociology. Let's um, do a little sociology. Do, do a little just bit a little of it. Uh, it's yeah. Right. Um, it and I could be wrong. It does seem like uh, communism, socialism, planned economies. Um, they're more popular now than ever before 
at a time when more than ever before, we have enormous progress across the world, a billion, two billion people out of poverty and starvation because of free market economics and only because of free market economics. This should be a time when your book should be like one of 27 books repeating, you know, the boilerplate of the time. I mean, the, isn't it weird that people at a time when we are, when, when I think free market economics should be making a victory lap where people are thinking, well, maybe we should just go back to having the government plan everything. Is that strange to you? Cause it's strange to me. Well, you know, uh, bad ideas never go away. They just they just sleep for a while and then they come back. I mean, the, what's the worst idea in the world is 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 I've got something for you and it's not going to cost you anything. Like that is a very attractive notion. <laughs> That's and true. That's it true. Shows up all the time, and you know, perhaps there's been some historical forgetting about uh, about the horrors of collectivism. Um, it, you know, it's it, it, it's tempting to think that the forgetting is is willful because um, it's never been easier to find stuff out. Like, you know, maybe a hundred years ago, uh, there was some debate over whether there was a famine in Ukraine and there was some confusion or, uh, you know, uh, you know, reports of the Holocaust initially sort of were sort of were, were, did, did we know what was happening or didn't we? Um, and you sort of get the answer 20, 30 years later, but it's never been easier to find out what a, garbage system communism is uh so yeah it is sort of shocking that people keep falling for it but uh you know uh liberty is only one generation away from extinction it's just it, it, there's going to need to be a book like this every five or ten years and i'm here to write it if i can interrupt here for just a second i want to ask you the listener something how are you today really how you doing and you're saying, I was better before you interrupted. Okay, I get that. I get that. But, you know, have a thing. Take a minute if you want to, right? If you're feeling hyper or you're tired or you know, annoyed with me or just, eh, well, maybe it's time to connect with your feelings by starting your mental health journey with Headspace. We all say, fine, I'm fine when we don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, you know, is it? How many times have you told yourself, I'm fine when really what you're really feeling is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace is a scientifically proven way to help you manage your feelings and mental health. In fact, a recent study proved that in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Now, whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety or sleep better or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Rob, we know, loves that. And as a matter of fact, he's not able to give an endorsement right now because he probably is taking his moment of mindfulness. I, you know, the reason that I like it is because I don't have to rely on my watch. I have this stupid watch, which periodically taps me and says, be mindful. No, I got stuff to do. No, I'm not. I'm, no, no, that's a gimmick. Headspace is not a gimmick. It's a program. It's a journey. It's a way to find your way back through mindfulness. So however you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash ricochet and get one month free from their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash ricochet today. Headspace.com slash ricochet. And we thank Headspace for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Uh, Matt, this is an aside. I have now, it has occurred to me, I now have a complete curriculum in economics for anyone of college age or later who really wants to understand this stuff. The third book to read, because it's several hundred pages and goes into topic after topic after topic, 
is Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. The second book, and there are only three, is Free to Choose by Milton Friedman. And the first book, because you really should be introduced to an otherwise intimidating subject by a man of charm and self-deprecation who can actually sling words, the first book to read is The Visible Hand. Okay, that's just my aside. That's my three-book, total, all-you'll-ever-need curriculum in economics. So, here's the, here's the question. A couple of years before he died, I happened to have dinner with Milton Friedman. And we were talking about, well, we were, there's almost no such thing as small talk with Milton. In any event, what it came down to was this. He looked at me. I was much younger then than I am now, I can tell you. And he said the challenge for my generation, meaning my Milton Friedman's generation, was to provide an intellectual defense of liberty. The challenge for your generation, meaning you, Peter, your generation, is to keep your liberty. In my judgment, the visible hand is not only a lovely, really lovely primer, you're the only person I know who in talking about economics in his very first answer to a question on a podcast like this would note that it's beautiful. But the book is part of a battle. Uh, you're younger than I am. You've got five little kids. How do you think things are going? Well, my kids aren't so little anymore. I, in fact, my oldest daughter is um, going off to college in the fall. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. So oh, my I, God. Wow. This, is, <laughs> this is an issue oh, that is very much at the front of my mind. This is very depressing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Listen, can I give you one fatherly advice? When you come you home want. after dropping her off, you must have something for Ursula to do right away. Take the kids' big dinner at home, family dinner, take her to them. We just do something because when a, when a woman says goodbye to her firstborn, in my humble experience, and I've heard the story, I've seen it in my own eye, with my own eyes, and I've seen it happen to many fans. When she comes home and that bedroom is empty, <laughs> it's a difficult moment. My, really wife dug a, my wife dug a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Mike. I like Go that ahead. you think That's that, that e I like that you think that each of my kids has their own bedroom. Yeah, no, my <laughs> bedroom. Well, that, well, let's say when that <laughs> bunk bed is empty, when that particular bunk is empty. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, what was the question? Uh, are we I losing? Yeah. yeah. Very How sad. How do you think things but... are going? Well, here's the thing. People ask. So, I work at the Wall Street Journal, um, and I'm an editor, and so people think I know all sorts of things. And I guarantee you that the three of you know more about economics, more about politics more about the price of tea in China than I'll ever know. So how is it going? It sure doesn't look like it's going that great. Um, we've spent a something, you know, between six and 12 trillion imaginary dollars in the last 12 to 16 months. Uh, that seems like it's going to have a long tail, uh, as the economists like to say, uh, you know, so the country once again feels like it's uh, going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and I'm going to be handing out copies of this book 
you know, in my living room, hopefully uh, some 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 young warriors in the Hennessy household will will decide to study something other than, <laughs> uh, you know, heroin poetry or uh, interpretive uh, ballet. Uh, but, you know, every generation has to fight this fight. Now you have to fight it in your house before you have to fight it in the streets. So um, I think the answer to your question is I have no idea, Peter. <laughs> one day at perhaps, a time <laughs> perhaps they will learn the lesson that when the government backs the loans the people who are running the schools jack up the prices and it's a spiral that doesn't seem to have any end and is a direct a, a wonderful manifestation of what happens when you get government involved in such these things but also matthew let the record state that you said that the three of us know more than you and not one of us issued a peep of protest which I mm. find fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm now, <laughs> yeah. I'm now, I'm now raising my hand in a peep of protest. I know nothing compared to what you have in your book, and everybody should read it. Peter has and thinks it's a wonderful, visible hand, a wealth of notions on the miracle of the market. Matthew Hennessy, thank you for joining us. Corral your wife after the kid goes off to school, and, uh, and bring her on the show here. And we'll, I, we've all, I've been there, and I, I, I know what it's like. I was gonna say, I know Ursula. I, I, I suspect she's gonna be tough. I don't know. Is that oh, right? It's Is it's it, a moment. Am I getting it wrong? Okay. It's All it's right. just a moment. Toughness has absolutely nothing to do with it. it I honestly right. feel like I should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of a single useful thing to say that's not going to get me in trouble. Except if she does come on with me the next time, and this is by no means meant uh, to, uh, oh, well, I, we yeah. will not hold you to this. But, but I want to find out if we can maybe go for the record on the on the okay. on the All husband right. and wife uh, uh, thing. It's on the list. But you'll have Mark Hemingway sort of uh, beating down your door trying to get yeah, in. Yeah, Hemingway's, before, uh, so. he's, he's not going to sleep on this, by the way. Hemingway's going to be in the in the fighting. So, Oh, we right. should do some sort of key party event where we just have all of the couples on <laughs> and then just have them pair off ideologically in some of the other little permutations. Matthew, thanks. We'll talk to you. We will talk to you again and, and everybody buy the book. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank Pat, you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Give our best to Ursula. Uh, yeah, when the kid goes away. Oh, boy, that's hard. And it uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't get any better. So what do you do sometimes? Well, you um, distract yourself, I guess, from that. And as I mentioned, my wife busied herself around the house. People do different things. Slap on your earphones, try to find some upbeat uh, music. But they're to... not in those earphones. Are any good. Those things don't work. Actually, Rob, you'd they be surprised. They don't even connect. And there's the wire. Well, the wire is not... Uh, it connects it, to the thing. You can't that's move like around. That's so 2001, 2002. When I was down in Mexico recently, I found myself, of course, in need of my headphones. And I needed them to be long-lasting. And <laughs> the longest-lasting headphones I have ever found are my Raycons, period. Now, look. Here we are, April, a few months into this. A lot of people did not make resolutions at the start of the year. And you know what? That's, that's okay. It doesn't mean you shouldn't still find a way to shake things up, make things new, whether it's by switching your workout routine or going someplace new, like I did in Mexico. Well, whatever way you choose to challenge yourself, there's no better way to do it than with a pair of Raycons. Raycon wireless earbuds. Put them in your ears and you'll see the difference. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you. Because no matter how much you shake things up, I mean, literally shake things up, they will not fall out of your ears. And I, you know, sometimes you're on the beach, you got those white ones, they fall out. Good luck finding them in the sand. Uh, My Raycon blues didn't fall out, but if they had, they would have been right there. There's also an awareness mode. That's for when you kind of, you know, need to listen to your surroundings and hear what's going on. So you can take Raycons with you wherever you go. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they will not budge. Trust me on this one. So Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. They're priced just right, too. 
You get quality audio at half the price of the premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycon's everyday earbuds have have over 48,000 five-star reviews. So right now, Ricochet listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash ricochet. That's buyraycon.com slash ricochet to save 15% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash ricochet. And we thank Raycon for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, before we go, a couple of other things. Um, while I was in Mexico, they had an Oscar night there at the big hmm. theater. Uh-oh. They showed it in Spanish, and they had Oscar statuettes. We were handed little glasses of bubbly as we walked in, and they had a casino where you could play blackjack. And there was a very interesting dealer who had all kinds of sleight of hand to make sure that everybody won because the fake money that you got afterwards you used for an auction. Well, everybody's really interested in playing these games of chance, the roulette, the blackjack. Nobody, nobody was watching what was going on uh, on the screen for the Oscars. Nobody seemed to care. And would anybody have cared, Rob, had it not been for the slap heard around the world? Well, I don't know. I mean, it was uh, Oscar. Uh, they had a giant jump after the slap, so people clearly were like saying, "You got to watch. You got to watch. You got to watch." Um, but it still was like, I mean, look, it was the second lowest rated Oscars ever. Was um, it even in spite of? Yeah, but because it's hard, it's, you know, you have to cum it up over all those over those hours anyway. Oh, I see. Um, but it was the but last year was the worst, the lowest. So this is the second lowest. So that you know, the, the trend's moving up. You know, you could you could comfort yourself if you want. Um, the movie business just doesn't know what it is because it's not what it was. So the Oscars represent something that doesn't exist anymore, and they're trying desperately to figure out what to do like there's there's you know you got three choices one is to throw in the towel the second is to say full speed ahead we are still going to be the oscars no matter what um the third is to sort of muddle through the way they're doing i mean coda won best picture it's a great movie it is a classic hollywood movie with no stars but it's still a kind of a movie that you could see winning 10 years ago 15 years ago um you know feel good movie that kind of thing the rest of them, I mean, but, but, but then the poor producers of CODA, no one's talking about CODA after the Oscars. Usually the Oscars, you get an Oscar bump, like people will go, oh, I didn't see that movie. I'll go see that movie. Um, I mean, I think people probably don't even remember who won Best Picture. Uh, you know, it's, it's not even a week away um, because of this giant thing that happened that, uh, <laughs> that um, took everybody's attention. The movie business um, is so different now, not the business, but just movies as a cultural entity are so different than when I was growing up. When I was growing up, a movie was announced, you waited for it, it came to town, it was there, there was a big ad in the Fargo form for four days. Then the ad got smaller until finally there was a note that says, last day, Jungle Book, you know, above the, the town theater. And then it was gone. And when it was gone, it was gone. Man. It was gone. It wasn't coming back. You couldn't flip around and call up some of the theater. Right. You couldn't turn on your television set. Maybe it would come to television in a couple of years, chopped up, put on the small screen, but without the experience that he had of the popcorn and the sticky floors and the creaky seats and the rest of it. That seems to me to be, I mean, what seems to me like it's a brilliant observation. That model's dead. That's gone. And I like what we have now in that everything is available. But when everything is available at the touch of a button and the flick of a, of a rocker switch, nothing is particularly important. Nothing has the same value that it did before. And you don't watch it because there's something else because I'll watch that great movie later and then you never do. And meanwhile, the streaming services curate and hone and edit until the library of American popular culture seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. 
I don't like any of this. I don't like any of this. I like going <laughs> to the movies. I like being overwhelmed by all of it. Somehow I knew you would. I like getting, I mean, I like going to the office. I like going to the movies and it makes me feel like I'm the most archaic person imaginable who just doesn't understand how wonderful these events sluicing through the American culture, how transformative they are. Get with it. Get with it, old guy. But, but you um, can't, there's, there's no, um, the, the music business, the music business is always is sort of like the, you know, if you want to see what's going to happen in media, there are two places to look. One is pornography. And the second is music pornography, because people just like it and they'll pay money for it. You know, the pornography on the internet is what really paved the way for a payment system that people trusted on the internet. As hard as it is for us to all accept it colonized the home video market. It sort of subsidized the beginning of the VHS and beta tapes in the seventies. Um, and then music music. I mean, you absolutely right. The, uh, people focused on music and the idea of what well, this unlimited bandwidth, which means that you can stream music and you can lime wire it, which means you can file share. And that was the big problem in the early two thousands and, uh, record companies tried all, all everything they could do to try to keep people from, but they said stealing music, which is what it was, but they tried to do that, which was kind of like a quixotic journey but what they forgot is that the second part of it is unlimited store width so if you experience the way you used to listen to music where the three of us are very old we would listen to it on vinyl and mm-hmm. like you had your vinyl and you got to put a record on the return table you listen to it and then it's like you had to get up off your ass and go change the record or maybe mm-hmm. if you were in the 70s you had a little stack of records you could like stack seven of them by the time you got to the seventh the speed was a little slower than 33 rpms <laughs> um and all of that was, and then you put it away and you never looked at it. And that's what the CD racks were in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right? These, these mm-hmm. racks of CDs that you never really looked at. You just had to get up and change them. Now, new music, old music, all of the music you've ever ever heard or wanted to hear is available. It all, it's all competing yes. with each other. And as you put it, it's the same way with movies. New movies, old movies, movies you've seen a million times, they're all competing. They're all as easy to watch as... They ever were as anything, and that it's store width that's killing it, but it's not really killing it because there's some really good movies, some really good. We're getting other things. I mean, if you if you like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul or The Sopranos or Game of Thrones or any of those things, that those were inconceivable right. 10, 15 years ago. So we're changing. Um, maybe the, the, and the movie becomes less important. The movie is just a standalone thing, yeah. or it's another chapter in an extended universe. Everybody giant their own universe spectacle with big but speakers. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm watching a show on Apple Television that's about it's, it's essentially a nine hour movie, right? Uh, Twin, Peaks, Twin Peaks Returns was a 13, 14 hour movie. That's how David mm-hmm. Lynch conceived it. But I, right. but we don't think of it that way. A movie to us is a discrete thing, 90 to 120 minutes. It fits in a box and that's what it is. Now you're right. Our tastes have changed and we want this. We want the long stories to give us uh, something to do at the end of the night. So it's the, yeah. it's the Dickens experience, right? I'm going to read mm-hmm. for an hour, a mm-hmm. chapter, in a gigantic saga. And eventually I'll end that and then I'll start another one. And that's what it, I mean. I'm not talking about the quality necessarily, but that is the, exp- the human experience of spending an hour at night doing a thing and immersing yourself in a continuing storyline. Uh, you're, you're, prob- you're probably wondering um, what this has to do with the National Journalism Center and a ricochet uh, <laughs> thing that's coming up. You'd be right, wouldn't you, Peter? I would. I, I, you, you're wondering when are we going to get to the important stuff? Enough about this ridiculous things. Hold on. This, this I have something yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I have. It's not important. What year did The Sound of Music come out? 
65, 66. 65. Something like that. Okay. 65. I just want to, because you, you opened with this, which I loved, of reading the newspaper in Fargo and seeing the big ad, smaller, small. Mm -hmm. Here's my memory of movies in the old days. This is my memory, since we're doing Lost Worlds, here's a glimpse of a mm -hmm. lost world. I was a little kid, but I can still remember that when we went to see The Sound of Music, my mother dressed up and my father wore a jacket and tie. And there was an intermission. <laughs> an intermission, at the theater, yes. Right, yeah. And, and and long the people came out and milled around, and we mm -hmm. talked with neighbors, and all the men were wearing jackets and ties. Mm -hmm. This world is gone. A world, right. <laughs> a, a world in which I didn't experience that world. A movie. Would I don't even a, think that was true. I think it's your memory. <laughs> no, it's a, 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 a world in which a movie would have an overture. Yeah, yes. I mean, the West Side Story yes. has an overture. Right. Yes. Right. I think Ice Station Zebra, for God's sakes, had an overture. I know be. that one had an intermission. Sure. Actually, I can take that one one step farther. That the theater, I didn't understand this until years later when my father explained it to me. But I grew up in a town's small town in upstate New York. But the, the movie theater was big, elaborate with painted ceilings and balconies on the side that nobody ever went into and my they were all old vaudeville houses right. so they had been live entertainment which my father when he was a boy had seen anyway speaking of lost worlds that's enough of that no but now, now we've, we've talked about this we haven't talked about the big event which i think is pretty good for yes us. yes over to james well no i actually i thought it would be over to rob because rob seems to be our, our go-to guy here for no, no. I look. I, I, uh, I, I saw it later. Um, I'm writing about it uh, today. In fact, my deadline is this afternoon. Um, I mean, I think it's going to. People will be thinking about this for a long time. Like all American, like, like all American culture. Um, the minute, really, within within 15, 20 minutes of the slap, and then the bizarre speech, and the sort of quizzling standing ovation um everyone had a take on it that somehow confirmed their prior pol political positions mm -hmm. it was racist it was not racist it was ra it's racist to talk about it it was all about race which doesn't seem to be to be right you know what comedians go too far anyway i mean it all does seem to conform to our general feeling that um that we just don't like it we just don't like humor anymore we just don't have the kind of ability well to and, and somebody with tremendous forensic skills on the internet found a YouTube clip of Will Smith on a late night talk show making fun of the band leader. It was Arsenio Hall, that was it. He was making fun of the band leader who had no hair and had the same condition that Will Smith's wife had. And they have him making fun of the guy and then looking at the audience and saying, hey, it's just a joke. There's a clip out there for everything, I tell you. There's a clip for everything. It's exactly Anyway, right. <laughs> we, wanted to, uh, we wanted to note the Take Back Our Schools initiative. Uh, yes. Thank again to the National Journalism Center and Young America's Foundation for hosting the Take Back Our Schools event earlier this week. Ramping up these in-person events, we are. So stay tuned for more news, including some fun member-only meetups where, you know, you never know you're going to find. Uh, for example, Colleen B. We wanted to give a shout-out, as the kids say, to longtime Ricochet member Colleen B. for making the trip to that event. Another reason to join Ricochet is you can hang out with cool people like Colleen B. Or Rob or Peter or, yeah. you know, depending on what happens. I'm still wondering what we're going to do for number 600, but perhaps we'll learn that in episode number 588. More details on the memberships at ricochet.com. Join. I will podcast. say this. Yeah. So just because I, I, I'm, I'm, it's not on my little things to say, but on, on probably, I think this is going to happen. Well, we have plenty of time. April 30, 
Saturday, April 30, New York City. We're going to do a pub crawl. We're going to meet in a bar and maybe go to two or three bars with another group. And uh, I'm going to invite some friends along. So maybe you'll see some people that you know from their bylines or wherever. Um, and so put that on your calendar. But you got to be a member. So you got to join. Can I come? Yeah, you're, well, can you come? Of course. Okay. All right. Let me look at my schedule. You are getting, cordially invited. I'm getting out in the world these days. And I'm having a great time doing so because I got that Tommy John to wear. I got the headspace <laughs> to keep me calm. And I got a Raycon to keep me entertained in my ears. Please support them for supporting us. And join Ricochet today, he says, for the 19th time. How about 20? Join Ricochet. Then you can go to Apple Podcast, <laughs> leave us a five-star review, which, of course, gives more listeners to the show, which helps keep the show going, et cetera, et cetera. The same thing I've been saying for 500 times and look forward to saying 500 more. Rob, Peter, it's been a pleasure, and we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. You'll be here next week, James? I will. Oh, what, a, what, what was that all about? <laughs> next week. Next week. Next, next week. Next week. She was frigid like a bubble when she met her boyfriend, Michael. Join the conversation.
Thank you.